You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. So before I tell today's story, I just wanted to mention there may be some content that may not sit well with some of my listeners. And that's because it deals with the controversial topic of beauty pageants. You know, which seems not only out of step with today's norms, but there are some quotes commenting on a woman's physique that are incredibly inappropriate and certainly would never make it into print today. But I did opt to include these quotes simply because they're representative of the time period. I should also point out that the story is quite US-centric, but I do think the bulk of the story has universal appeal. Now, the judging of beauty, both male and female, has probably been going on since the beginning of mankind. Yet the first truly modern beauty contest here in the United States is said to have begun with perhaps the most famous showman of all time, P.T. Barnum, who back in the 1850s began holding contests before paying audiences, you know, to select the best chicken, the nicest dog, most beautiful flower, the most beautiful child in all of America. So it was only a matter of time before he turned his attention to the, quote, the handsomest ladies in the United States. Well, surprisingly, that was one beauty pageant he couldn't pull off. Due to the conservative nature of society at the time, Barnum was unable to find enough women willing to publicly place themselves on display. So his solution was actually quite ingenious. He would have a picture photo contest women would submit photographs of themselves, which Barnum intended to display in his museum, and then, of course, his patrons would vote for the most beautiful woman. The prize for being among the top ten of the winners was a specially commissioned oil painting based on their photograph. In addition, a book of portraits titled World's Book of Female Beauty would be published in France for the whole world to see. Yet this was never to be. That's because Barnum sold his museum shortly before the judging ever began. But soon others around the country picked up on Barnum's idea, and the exhibition of submitted photographs became a respectable way for young women to have their beauty judged. By the early part of the 20th century, social norms began to change. Resorts and entertainment venues began to host beauty pageants, although they were strictly localized events. Well, a big change would occur when businessmen in the resort town of Atlantic City, New Jersey, held what they referred to as a fall frolic. 
Well, the planners never set out to create a national beauty pageant. What they were trying to do was to get people to visit Atlantic City after Labor Day, which marks the traditional end of summer here in the United States, after which beach resorts like Atlantic City became ghost towns. The first fall frolic was held on September 25th of 1920, and while the event did bring visitors in, it wasn't the smashing success that they had hoped for. To increase attendance the following year, changes were made to the program. First, nine East Coast newspapers agreed to hold picture photo contests within their pages, and that allowed their readers to choose the most beautiful women in their city. The finalists from these contests would then go on to compete in a local beauty contest, the winner of which would be awarded an all-expenses-paid trip to Atlantic City to appear in the fall frolic. There, they would all compete in a beauty contest in which the winner would be crowned the Intercity Beauty. The next day, these young women would also compete in the Bather's Review, the winner then crowned the Golden Mermaid. Now, if you're imagining young women walking around the stage in skimpy swimwear, keep in mind that bathing suits were still quite conservative in 1921. Well, Miss Washington, D.C., Margaret Gorman, was the winner that year, and just prior to the 1922 event, her title was changed from the catchy, really original intercity beauty to Miss America. Now, I could throw in a lot of trivia about the early days of the pageant, but I'm going to fast forward to the 1937 contest, because that's the focus of today's story. And unlike today where there are 51 contestants, you know, one from each state plus Washington, D.C., back then there could be multiple representations from one state and absolutely none from another. For example, New York had Miss Westchester County, Miss New York City, Miss Troy, Miss Bronx, and Miss Empire State all in 1937. Yet there were no contestants from states such as Arkansas, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, New Mexico, Utah, and so on. Now, Miss Puerto Rico was present, but she wasn't allowed to compete due to the contest rule number seven, which was abandoned in 1940, which required contestants to be, quote, of good health and of the white race. Festivities got underway on Monday, September 6th, with all the contestants meeting together for the first time at Philadelphia's Bellevue Stratford Hotel. After the women were photographed, given a tour of the city, they were the guests at an extravagant dinner held in their honor by the Philadelphia Variety Club. Earl Swigert, one of those in charge of the Philadelphia arrangements, stated, quote, I never saw a finer-looking group of girls in my life. The judges this year will have a very difficult task to determine who is the most beautiful girl and the girl with the most personality. I understand also that some of the girls are really talented. The next day, all of the contestants boarded the American Beauty Special train, arriving in Atlantic City at 11.20 a.m. The pageant opened with a flag-raising and gun salute on the deck of Atlantic City's famed Steel Pier Entertainment and Amusement Complex. This was followed by dignitaries giving their obligatory speeches, which were probably quite boring, with music provided by Rudy Valley and his orchestra. The contestants met with the press at noon, followed by the Variety Club Jubilee Luncheon at the Traymore Hotel. 
Little side note here is that the Traymore Hotel is no longer in existence, but the hotel was located at the intersection of two Monopoly's most expensive properties, Boardwalk and Park Place. It was at 8.30 that evening that the first round of judging took place in the Marine Ballroom on the Steel Pier. As a crowd of 7,000 looked on, 15 of the contestants competed in what was called the Talent Preliminary Contest, which was really broken into three segments. First, the girls paraded past the judges in their evening gowns. That was followed by the swimsuit competition, and the night concluded with the talent portion of the show. Only the top talent winner, that was Miss Massachusetts Claire Nebulous, was announced at the end of the evening. The remainder of the rankings were kept secret. Now, this same contest would be repeated Wednesday and Thursday evenings until all 46 contestants appeared before the judges. Miss California Phyllis Randall and Miss New York Grace Travis placed first in those two evening competitions. On Friday, thousands of spectators looked on as a parade featuring spectacular floats, bands, and of course the Miss America contestants moved along the boardwalk. At 9 p.m., all of the contestants competed in the American Ball, during which the young ladies walked along the runway in their evening gowns so the judges could select, quote, the most beautiful girl in an evening gown and the, quote, girl with the most pleasing personality. The winner of the evening gown contest was Miss Bertrand Island, Betty Cooper, who, quote, wore a coronation red transparent velvet gown with a full skirt accentuated by a hoop. Miss Westchester County, Evelyn Ray, was voted to have the best personality. Then, at 11 p.m., the 15 women who ranked the highest in the three preliminary contests were announced, and that allowed them to advance on to the final competition. Well, Saturday was the big day. At 8.30 p.m., another 7,000 spectators packed the Marine Ballroom to witness the final judging. It wouldn't be until 11.30 p.m. that the coronation ceremony would begin. There was a tie for the third runner-up between Miss California Phyllis Randall and Miss Miami Ermigard Dietl. Second runner-up was Miss North Carolina Ruth Covington. The first runner-up was Miss Texas Alice Emmerich. And the new Miss America in 1937 was, drumroll please... 17-year-old Miss Bertrand Island, Betty Cooper. But just who was Betty Cooper? And where in the world was Bertrand Island? I certainly had no clue prior to researching the story. Well, the world would soon find out. Betty was born on August 11, 1920, to Mabel and Marin LeBrun Cooper in Hackettstown, New Jersey. She was the second of the couple's three children, and the family lived at 504 Moore Street, that's the same house she was born in, and it just happened to be located directly across the street from the campus of Centenary College. At the time of Betty being crowned Miss America, she had just begun her first year of junior college there. Prior to this, Betty attended Hackettstown High School, where she excelled in her academic studies, participated in theater productions, and was highly active in sports such as basketball, volleyball, and track. In her spare time, she loved to swim, play tennis, cycle, and dance. 
although she did state, quote, but not those modern dances. I prefer old-time graceful waltz. The interesting thing is that Betty Cooper never dreamed of becoming Miss America. Her path to the crown began in the summer of 1936 when she entered a beauty pageant at the Bertrand Island Amusement Park on Lake Hopakong in New Jersey. Now, the amusement park is long gone, but it was a moderately sized family-run entertainment venue. You know, nothing like those mega amusement parks that exist today. So entering a beauty contest there was not a big deal. Being crowned Miss Bertrand Island carried no greater significance than, you know, maybe being crowned the queen of a resort hotel or a parade. And Betty did not win that year. She came in third. Fast forward one more year to 1937, and Betty is back at the amusement park to have some fun with her friends. And wouldn't you know it, the park was once again holding one of its many beauty contests. Well, her friends convinced Betty that she should try one more time. She should enter the contest. And to her surprise, Betty was crowned Miss Bertrand Island 1937. Two weeks later, on August 12, 1937, Betty and ten other winners from local pageants met up in the Bertrand Island Ballroom to compete for the title of Miss Lake Hopakong 1937. And once again, Betty was chosen to be the winner, which automatically advanced her straight on to the Miss America pageant. Now, since the amusement park paid for Betty's travel expenses to Atlantic City, she did not compete as Miss Lake Hopakong. She competed as Miss Bertrand Island for publicity purposes. The reality was that Betty never expected to win the Miss America title. She simply wasn't the classic long-legged beauty that stereotypically wins beauty contests. Now, as judged by the press back then, Betty was more of an adult version of Shirley Temple. The main reason she agreed to participate in the Miss America contest was that it allowed her entire family to have an all-expense-paid trip to Atlantic City. And when she did win, Betty was completely unprepared for what came next. Moments after being crowned, dozens of photographers rushed towards the stage. The constant popping of the flashbulbs seemed blinding as Betty stood there in shock. Reporters began their rapid-fire questioning of the new queen, and as she sobbed in apparent happiness, Betty stated, quote, I don't know what to say. I'm so happy. Shortly after that, the pageant came to a close, and Betty and her family retreated to their hotel rooms to get some much-needed rest. The following morning, cameramen for the newsreel pictures and newspapers arrived to the steel pier to set up their equipment for a scheduled 10.30 a.m. press conference with Miss America and the runner-ups. But there was one big problem. Betty Cooper, Miss America 1937, was nowhere to be found. Phone calls were made to her room, but she was long gone. Even her parents couldn't say where she went. Miss America had gone AWOL. As reporters and policemen scuttled off in search for the missing Miss America, pageant officials attempted to make the best of a bad situation. And I'll put this on my website. 
There was a photograph syndicated in the newspapers across the country showing a vacant throne with Miss America's robe draped over it. Her crown can be seen sitting on the seat of the throne while the big, large trophy that she won sat on the ground near the base of the chair. On one side, you had Miss Texas, the first runner-up, and on the other side, you had Miss North Carolina and Miss Miami standing there all dressed in their swimsuits, but you hardly notice them because of the empty throne. Atlantic City Mayor C.D. White told the press, quote, We don't know where Miss Cooper is. Her parents didn't mind her entering the pageant, but they didn't expect her to win. They let her come down because it was a nice vacation for all of them, but now that she's won the crown, they don't want her running all over the country for stage appearances and screen tests. But where was Miss America? The rumors spread like wildfire. Did she forfeit her title? Would Miss Texas now be crowned Miss America? Could Betty have been kidnapped? Famed gossip columnist Walter Winchell even took to the airwaves and reported that Betty had eloped in Maryland. None of this was true. It turns out that Betty had been hiding in plain sight the entire time. In explaining what really happened, we must return to that first day when all the contestants showed up in Atlantic City. Upon arrival, each of the young women was assigned a male chaperone, officially called a chauffeur, to escort them around the city and to all of the pageant functions. This had been done out of necessity because the Miss America pageant was operating on a shoestring budget during the Great Depression. So to save money, pageant organizers came up with the brilliant idea of finding young men who would volunteer their time to entertain the young ladies. I mean, what young men wouldn't want to do that? On its surface, it seemed like the ideal situation. You know, the young men got to spend time with beautiful women, the contestants would have a handsome escort to show them around the city, and of course, the pageant got free labor. What could go wrong? Well, they were about to find out. A few days before the pageant was scheduled to begin, 21-year-old Lewis Off and a friend decided to volunteer their services. But by the time they arrived at pageant headquarters, only two contestants remained without chauffeurs. That was Miss New Orleans and Miss Bertrand Island. So Lou was courteous and he let his buddy pick first, leaving Lou with the only unselected girl. That was Betty Cooper. Years later, Lou would recall, quote, I remember there were all sorts of girls. A lot of them were just cute bathing suit girls and there's even one stripper in the contest. In this crowd, Betty Cooper stood out like a beacon in the middle of the ocean. The two hit it off right away. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Betty was beautiful inside and out, while Lou was good-looking, well-dressed, and polite. His family owned both the nearby Brighton Hotel and a floral nursery, so he was able to send Betty orchids every single day of the pageant. While Betty seemed enamored by her chaperone, Lou saw more as an opportunity, you know, to spend some time with a beautiful woman. On the day of Betty's coronation, she had some downtime before the evening pageant, so Lou asked her if he could take her to lunch. He picked her up at the Lafayette Hotel, and Lou described what happened next. Quote, We took a long drive first. Betty had a cold and didn't feel well at all. She had even been to see a doctor. I remember we stopped for lunch at a restaurant in Summers Point, 
And when we were sitting there, I asked her, Betty, have you really thought about what you're going to do if you win this thing tonight? He continued. She just laughed and said the thought was ridiculous. Then, after winning the contest that evening, it quickly became clear that Betty was unprepared for all of the demands that being Miss America entailed. After retreating to her hotel room that evening, she panicked. Lou described what happened next. Quote, About 2 a.m. the phone rang and it was Betty. She was in tears and she said, I want to see you. I don't want any part of it. And I said, if you don't want it, you don't have to have it. That's when Lou ran into a nearby telephone booth and he emerged seconds later as Superman. Okay, maybe it wasn't that dramatic. Lou went and he fetched his car from the Brighton Hotel garage, and then he raced over to the Lafayette where he met up with Betty's father in the lobby. Mr. Cooper explained that Betty was in over her head and didn't want the title of Miss America after all. The entire family just wanted to go home. So Lou drove off and then he asked two of his buddies for assistance. Lou returned to the Lafayette around 4.30 in the morning with his friends, and they escorted Betty down the fire escape and off to freedom. They drove about 4 miles, or 6.4 kilometers, down the coast to nearby Margate, and then they boarded a fishing boat that they had docked there. From there, they sailed directly back to the steel pier, and they dropped anchor just a short distance away as dawn was breaking. With Betty ill, she slept most of the day below deck as Lou and his buddies relaxed and did some fishing. The entire time they're able to watch all of the commotion taking place up on the pier as the search for Miss America continued. Later that afternoon, they sailed right back to Margate, hopped in Lou's Buick, and they drove three and a half hours to Hackettstown, arriving at Betty's home around midnight. Once officials determined Betty's whereabouts, the pageant's board of governors had an emergency meeting to determine how to handle this unusual situation. Betty was willing to walk away from all of her winnings, and that included a six-week vaudeville contract, $400 for a five-day stint on the steel pier, that's about $7,200 today, a $1,000 fur coat, which is worth about $18,000 today, although there was an initial misunderstanding as to whether or not she was getting the coat for free or whether she was getting it at cost. And finally, there was a flight to Hollywood for a screen test. She was willing to walk away from all of it. But the real question was whether or not pageant officials would force Betty to forfeit her Miss America title. George D. Tyson, then the director of the Showman's Variety Jubilee, which operated the Miss America pageant, soon announced, quote, Miss America has decided against launching her professional career at this time. She is too ill to be on hand today. She is still Miss America. She rightfully won, and the pageant officials will not dictate her future course. Yet behind the scenes, there was a lot of negotiation taking place. With Betty being only 17 years of age, she couldn't be held legally responsible for any contract she had signed. So her parents demanded that she receive a less vigorous schedule. It was agreed that in exchange for Betty retaining her Miss America title, she would participate in only a small fraction of her expected duties. Four days after being crowned Miss America, 
Betty Cooper announced to the world that her abdication was completely a mistake. Needless to say, the press had a field day with the story. It was front-page news across the nation. In fact, the Associated Press ranked it as the 10th biggest story of 1937, with the Hindenburg disaster being number one. One article concluded that Betty's initial decision was the correct one. Quote, According to actuaries, the odds are almost 4 to 1 against any holder of the crown making a successful marriage. The average Miss America can expect no more than 3.9456 years of bliss. Well, I guess only the passage of time will determine if Betty could beat those odds. Another story, and this one's quite offensive by today's standards, commented that ordinary women shouldn't fret because Betty's proportions weren't perfect either. Quote, She is 5 feet 6 and 1 half inches tall and weighs 120 pounds. She has a bust measurement of 32 inches, hips 36 inches, and waist 26 inches. Thigh 20 inches, calf 13 inches, ankle 8.5 inches. According to the accepted standards in symmetry, Miss Cooper's hip measurement is too large or her bust too small. The rest of her measurements are very nearly perfect and she's an exceptionally pretty girl. Wow. Reporters waited outside the Cooper home, but the family had very little to say. Mrs. Cooper answered the door and stated, quote, Betty is in bed sick and I'm going to bed. I'm sick. She then pointed to a sign placed near the doorbell that read, Do not ring the bell owing to sickness. Betty's father said, quote, Betty is not the type of girl to appear in vaudeville. She isn't robust enough for the professional grind. She just entered on a lark. Her mother and I wanted to finish school first to get polished off, then do something that isn't strenuous, like modeling for magazine covers. As for her relationship with Lewis Off, her sister Mabel stated, quote, Puppy love, not serious. Her father added, Ah, that's no romance. Lou's too sensible a boy to think of romance at his age. When questioned by gossip columnist Dorothy Kilgallen, Betty said, Love? Poof, I'm not in love. I'm too young. All I can think of is going back to school. Lewis is just a friend of my family. Months later, it was clear that Betty had no regrets over her decision. Quote, I want as good an education as I can get. After that, I want to try at earning my own living. I hope that I'll be able to get into radio. After that, I'd like to marry, but not before I've finished with a career. Throughout the remainder of her year as Miss America, Betty mostly focused on her education and selectively did promotions for the pageant in her spare time. Quote, on Saturday, I often go to New York to pose for commercial photographers, and several times I've endorsed products over the radio. Her public appearances were quite few, but she did appear in the occasional parade, at a promotion for New Jersey's dairy industry, and at a few fashion shows. In print advertisements, Betty Cooper could be seen receiving a new Underwood typewriter, endorsing soaps, or promoting the Beautyrest line of mattresses with the quote, it gives me a real beauty rest every night, printed right next to her image. At the end of her reign, she commented, quote, I've done what I wanted to do. You might say I've eaten my cake and had it too. 
After dealing with the fiasco of the 1937 pageant, changes were made to the competition. First, all future contestants were required to be between the ages of 18 and 28. Of course, that minimum was set to ensure that the winner could legally sign a contract that detailed, you know, all the responsibilities and duties required of being Miss America. In addition, they ended the male chaperone program, probably no surprise there. It was replaced instead with a hostess program, and it prohibited the contestants from spending any time alone with a man during the week of the beauty pageant. As for the 1938 pageant, it basically went off without a hitch. Marilyn Maseki of Marion, Ohio was crowned the new Miss America. And it was tradition, and it still is, that the previous Miss America would hand off her sash and crown to the new winner, but that did not happen in 1938. That's because Betty Cooper was not at the pageant, an absence that the press interpreted as a major snub on the part of the pageant organizers. After Betty completed her two-year degree at Centenary Collegiate Institute in 1940, she found employment as the public relations director of the Sandy Valley Grocery Company in Ashland, Kentucky. In 1947-48, she taught kindergarten at the Edgewood School in Greenwich, Connecticut, before enrolling in Columbia University in 1949. On April 27, 1951, Betty married engineer William F. Moore. The couple lived in Greenwich where they raised their two children, Gregory and Cheryl. Sadly, Betty's husband died in 1968. But her 17-year marriage did beat the prediction that a former Miss America would only experience 3.9456 years of wedded bliss. Betty's last major public appearance as a former Miss America was at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. For the remainder of her life, she would say nothing publicly about her 1937 coronation. When Elizabeth Cooper Moore passed away on December 10th of 2017, she was 97 years old and she was the oldest living Miss America at the time. Betty's obituary detailed her family, her love of music, her involvement in a church, and that she was an enthusiastic golfer and tennis player. The one glaring detail that was missing, however, was that Betty Cooper was once Miss America. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Here we go! Oh, no. 
Call me a dork, but when I was a kid, my favorite part of the Miss America contest was not watching the beautiful women parade across a television screen. It was hearing Bird Park sing that corny theme song to the newly crowned Miss America every year. This particular recording is from the 1977 ceremony where Miss Minnesota Dorothy Benham won the contest. The song, There She Is, Miss America, was written by Bernie Wayne while he was getting a haircut in 1954. It was first used in a Philco television playhouse show titled The Miss America Story that starred Lee Merriweather and Johnny Desmond. Desmond sang the song as Merriweather, who was Miss California at that moment, was crowned the fictional Miss America. The show aired on September 4th of 1955. Seven days later, the real Miss America contest was broadcast on television for the very first time. Burt Parks, who you just heard singing, had been hired to host the show, and that was a job he'd retain until his firing in 1979. In a very strange coincidence, he sang the song to the new Miss America winner that year, who just happened to be the same woman who played her on television one week earlier, Lee Merriweather. Personally, I remember Lee Merriweather fondly from my youth for two different roles that she played on television. The first was that of Catwoman on the campy Batman series. Later, she played opposite Buddy Epson on Barnaby Jones. Now, I haven't seen that latter show in decades, so I'm sure it's very dated by today's standards, but it was one of my favorites back then. Here's an intro to the show. Barnaby Jones, starring Buddy Ebsen, also starring Lee Merriweather, with guest stars Janice Rule, Darlene Carr, Victoria Shaw, special guest star William Shatner. Tonight's episode, To Catch a Dead Man. So here's a question for you. Today's contestants for the Miss America contest must be between the ages of 17 and 25. But those high and low cutoffs have changed over the years. So do you know how old the youngest Miss America was? Now, if you don't know, just make a guess. Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. In other news, here are three stories dealing with beauty contests in one form or another. On August 3, 1952, it was announced that the Worth Theater in Fort Worth, Texas, would be sponsoring a beautiful legs contest to help promote Rita Hayworth's latest film, Affair in Trinidad. The competition was open to any young woman, whether single or married, who had never acted or modeled professionally. All she had to do was complete the contest entry blank that was printed in the Fort Worth Star and send it along with a photograph of herself dressed in either a bathing suit or play suit, to the theater. Then, from the submissions received, the judges would select the top 12 girls solely on the basis of their legs. Then, on August 15th, the dozen selected would compete for the best legs in front of a live audience just prior to the premiere of an affair in Trinidad. At first glance, it seemed as if the winner of the contest would win an all-expense-paid trip to Trinidad that included a two-day trip to New York, a bon voyage party, a contract with a New York model agency, and an additional $3,000 worth of assorted prizes. But, as they say, the devil's in the details. In reality, the top winners in Fort Worth would receive prizes from a local woman's clothing store. The grand prize winner would then have her photograph forwarded to New York for national judging. And that's because the same contest was occurring in cities and towns all across the United States. Well, the winner of the Rita Hayworth Beautiful Legs contest in Fort Worth was 18-year-old Miss Charlene Campbell, a senior at Polytechnic High School. The following May, Charlene competed in the Miss Fort Worth pageant. She was described in the newspaper as, quote, a blonde with blue-gray eyes, weighs 125 pounds, and is 5 feet 5 inches tall. Miss Campbell has a 37-inch bust measurement, 23-inch waist, and 36-inch hips. 
I just can't believe they printed this stuff. Needless to say, Charlene didn't win the contest. Miss Betty Harbin, a sophomore at Texas Christian University, was crowned Miss Fort Worth. That made Miss Harbin eligible to compete in the Miss Texas contest, but she lost out to Paula Marie Lane, of which the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported, quote, The 18-year-old Miss is 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighs 128 pounds. She has a 36-inch bust, 34-inch waist, and 37-inch hips. She was graduated from Claiborne High School this spring and has ambitions to be an airline stewardess or a model. Well, Paula Lane went on to compete in the Miss America contest, but lost out that year to Evelyn A., Miss Pennsylvania. Next, it was reported on Wednesday, July 1st of 1964, that 17-year-old Barbara Gander had been selected from a pool of 20 finalists to be the winner of, you're going to love this, the World Posture Queen pageant that was held in Denver, Colorado, and judged by the American Chiropractic Association. What an honor. The first of these contests was held in Michigan in 1955 by the Mission Academy of Chiropractic. The following year, the pageant went national and international the next. While poise and personality certainly factored into the judging, the most important of the criteria was to have a perfectly straight spine. And the way they determined this was quite interesting. They gave each of the contestants an x-ray. As unusual as this contest may seem, it proved to be quite popular. Just as in your typical beauty pageant, the winners of local pageants would then move on to compete on a state level, and then they would advance on to the national level. Well, the search for a world posture queen ended in 1969, although local contests did continue for a few more years after that. Lastly, one of my favorite movies of all time is 1968's Planet of the Apes. The movie proved to be so successful that four sequels were made in quick succession, each one, in my opinion, getting progressively worse. Now, as a promotional stunt for the fourth film, which was Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, a contest was held to find, quote, the most beautiful ape in the world. An advertisement in the June 10th, 1972 issue of the Los Angeles Times reads, quote, Girls, 18 and over, enter the most beautiful ape in the world beauty contest. Sponsored by Gary Owens of radio station KMPC. Monday, June 12th, 1972, Century City Mall, near Broadway Department Store, 12 noon. Winner to receive a one-week film role in producer Arthur P. Jacobs' next Apes film. Music, stars, beautiful apes. Judges from the newest Apes movie are Ricardo Montalban, Don Henry, Harry Rhodes, and Natalie Trundy. Oddly, every time I hear the name Ricardo Montalban, and I know he had a lot of great roles in his life, all I can think of is rich Corinthian leather, which, by the way, was made in Newark, New Jersey. Each of the contestants was required to wear hot pants or bikinis during the competition. In addition, the young women had to cover their faces with an ape mask and were, quote, judged solely on the basis of their figures and ability to climb trees. The winner of the contest was 24-year-old Dominique Green of Malibu, California, and as you heard, she was guaranteed a one-week contract to appear in the fifth film. That was 1973's Battle for the Planet of the Apes. $350 in cash, 
which is about $2,150 today, and supposedly all the bananas she could eat. So did this make Ms. Green a movie star? Well, according to the Internet Movie Database, the only film she ever appeared in was Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Her role is listed as female ape, and then in parentheses it says uncredited. So earlier in the podcast, I had asked you what the age was of the youngest woman ever to be chosen Miss America. Did you know? Well, the youngest Miss America was Marion Bergeron, Miss America of 1933. She was from West Haven, Connecticut, and she held the title for two years simply because there was no competition held in 1934. Marion was just 15 years old when she was first crowned. Now, there was one other Miss America that held the title for more than one year. She was Mary Catherine Campbell, and she was Miss America for 1922 and 1923. She was also the first runner-up in 1924. And, of course, after that, they changed the rules so that no one could ever be Miss America twice. As for why there was no Miss America contest in 1934, there's a bit of a backstory there. Basically, by the mid-1920s, a combination of bad press and pressure from women's groups and church officials began to give Atlantic City a bad name. So pageant organizers voted 27-3 to to discontinue the contest after the 1927 ceremony. When the Great Depression hit, tourism was brought to a screeching halt, and of course Atlantic City suffered greatly. So in 1933, the decision was made to relaunch the Miss America pageant in the hope that it would attract huge crowds. Unfortunately, due to poor promotion, it was a financial disaster. So it was right back to the drawing board, and of course the 1934 contest was skipped. With better planning and promotion, the program was relaunched in 1935 and has continued ever since. If you're curious, four women tied for being the oldest chosen to be Miss America. All were 25 years of age, although it should be pointed out that the maximum age was capped at 24 for many years, and that was finally changed in 2018 to 25. Now, there was no Miss America in 1950 because that was the year they began to post-date the contest. For example, in September of 1937, Betty Cooper, who the main story is about, she became Miss America 1937. But starting in September of 1950, Yolande Betbees, who would have normally been Miss America 1950, she was now crowned Miss America 1951, so they skipped the year 1950. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. If you go to my website, which is uselessinformation.org, I will post images and links to videos of Betty Cooper and the 1937 Miss America pageant. If you listen to this podcast until the very, very end, the last bit, I will play a short clip of Betty commenting on the pageant. Just a reminder that my new book, The Flipside History, is currently available. It makes a great stocking stuffer. So if you enjoy listening to the stories that I include in this podcast, I highly encourage you to get a copy of the book. It is also available on audiobook, but as I've said multiple times before, I did not do the narration for it. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, and that'll allow you to be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Again, the handle is at UselessInfoCast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook if you've never done so before. 
All you have to do is do a quick search for the useless information podcast and it should pop up. Make sure that you subscribe to the useless information podcast and you can do so through whichever podcast platform you use, whether that be Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeart, Spotify, TuneIn, and so on. There's a whole bunch of them. Now, I did have a laugh the other day when I got an email that showed where in the world this podcast was doing exceptionally well, and these are all in the history category. I ranked number two in Niger, number seven in Macau, number 11 in Botswana, number 12 in Tanzania, and number 19 in Uruguay. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Take care, everyone. Bye. The first girl ever to spurn Atlantic City's crown of beauty, Betty Cooper, 17, made headline history, but remains a very level-headed myth. Of course I am happy to have been shown to Miss America for 1937. What girl wouldn't be? But I do not believe it sensible to sacrifice my home life, my education, and all my girlfriends for it. I want to be a real Miss America, following the happy, healthy, normal pursuit that all American girls cherish. In doing this, I feel sure that I am truly representing Miss America. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.